Epigenetics Podcast Episode 19. Welcome to the 19th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Tom Moss from the University Laval in Quebec City. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. Um, please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you are originally from Portsmouth, um, southern England, where you obtained your Bachelor of Science in Applied Physics and a Doctorate in Biophysics. Um, you then went to study gene regulation at the Institute of Molecular Biology of Zurich uh, before returning to Portsmouth as, as a senior lecturer and establishing your first lab there. Um, you were then recruited by the Laval University School of Medicine in 1986. And since then, you basically are at the Hotel Dieu de Quebec at the Department for Molecular Biology. Um, a question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast and to break the ice is, how do, did you become interested in biology at the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Well, I think I wasn't interested particularly in biology. Um, unfortunately, I, I never had any training in biology. Okay. Um, throughout my early education at all, no contact. Um, really, it came through the people in Portsmouth who were running the degree, the applied physics degree. They um, were very interested in in structure, protein structure. And so... I became interested in protein structure because it was a fascinating problem. <laughs> it was a physical problem with lots of atoms rather than the very few that we normally looked at. Mm -hmm. So it really all stemmed from there. My initial idea was to uh, to do a PhD in structural biology, mm -hmm. X-ray crystallography at the time. And that was probably the top-notch technology then. Yeah, uh, and that was before any kind of um, imaging systems <laughs> uh, were available to look at these things. People were still cutting pieces of plastic uh, to model the density, electron density. Um, and what fascinated me right at the beginning was being introduced to, to certain groups who were developing the software. Mm -hmm. to try to image on a computer rather than image with pieces of plastic. And uh, did you envision then to like pursue a career in science or did you also have thoughts in moving into it? Uh, yeah, I always, right from secondary school, I, I, was, I was always very interested in playing about with things, especially mechanical things electrical things um, and uh, it was just an assumption I made that somewhere I was going to do physics and study things that people <laughs> study in physics okay <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, I can remember at, at, at uh, secondary school um, being told very clearly that it's not important the first degree it's not important your PhD Just get the postdoc right. Okay. Um, and I was only 15 at the time. So, <laughs> oh, that was you know, so this was a, a rather unusual way to, to start out. Yeah, but then, I mean, 
the first degree and second degree takes like about 10 years maybe or something so this is like yeah. a very long time to figure yeah, things yeah. out yeah yeah so during your scientific life you traveled quite a lot um, but how did did you end up in quebec i mean that's not the most oh, prominent scientific uh, location maybe no not really it was um it was a matter of i was in a um at the time a polytechnic in portsmouth and uh Subsequently, it became a university. Okay. But uh, the teaching load was just enormous. And it it ground you down completely. I mean, we spent most of our time with contact with students. Mm -hmm. um, so there was very little time to do anything. Uh, and the time you had really was just in the evenings to go into the lab. But then you had to go home and write new courses continuously. I was always trying to catch up with the next day's course. Yeah. So it was just exhausting. And um, somebody I, I knew vaguely working in chromatin, because we still had these contacts with people working in chromatin from the earlier time when I did my PhD, um, he had been in Berlin as a in a Max Planck Institute, um, and when that period ended, um, he managed to find this position in Quebec. Oh, okay. And so I knew of him, and I knew that he was pretty good at what he did. He had some very nice publications, and so I, I persuaded my wife, who didn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> And so we moved to, to Quebec, and uh, oh, I yeah. didn't manage to get away. <laughs> Obviously. So we are now sitting at the University of Regensburg. Um, how did you, con how did you yeah, connect to those people here? Well, we've, we've always had these, uh, well, always. For many years there have been meetings, these odd poll meetings, which started out really as preliminary three meetings, and then joined up with preliminaries one meetings. Um, and the people from Regensburg were generally involved there. Okay. And they were always working on yeast systems. And of course, their advances in yeast were mainly genetic at the beginning. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, we could... At first, I suppose I couldn't really communicate very well with them. But I realized they had good ideas and they had <laughs> good experiments, and, and we were learning things from this. So it gradually came along to well, it was obvious to ask them, you know, can I spend a, a sabbatical here? Mm -hmm. uh, I never managed to to make a really full sabbatical. I think the first time was a month, and the second time a couple of months, and it's been going on. Every so many years, I come back and uh, we sit around and talk and imagine experiments we're <laughs> going to do. And up to now, we generally don't get round to them, but but we go back and uh, do them or, or try to do them. Which is uh, basically yeah, maybe the foundation of science, right? Thinking about models, experiments, and then uh, trying yeah, to do I suppose, them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's trying to find ways of looking at different things and and technically possible approaches to doing it. 
So let's go to your science. Um, for the most part of your scientific career, you were working around UBF, uh, polymerase 1, the ribosomal DNA, as you just uh, mentioned. Um, and for that, you chose Xenopus levis as one of your model organisms. Um, what makes this model organism so suitable for this kind of studies? Why did you... Because, well, I mean, it's not it, the most beautiful animal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I, I haven't been doing any, any Xenopus work for a long time now. But um, originally, it wasn't a choice. It was an enforced choice. Okay. During my uh, postdoc, um, the, uh, the people in Zurich were, were working generally on trying to understand transcription. In those days, we didn't know what a promoter was. Uh, we knew there were polymerases, but we didn't know how they found where they needed to find in order to make transcripts. Uh, so there are many different approaches to this. And one that uh, in Max's lab and um, John Gurdon's lab in, in, in England, um, Don Brown's lab in the States, we're using was microinjection into the germinal vesicle, the nucleus, in oocytes, which is relatively easy to do. When you start coming from my background, it wasn't too easy <laughs> to start with, but <laughs> but you know you get you you manage to do these things and gradually manage to make it work. Um, and really that was the reason for Xenopus. Xenopus was not a choice of organism except, of course, that the first gene that was ever cloned, eukaryotic gene that was ever cloned, came from Xenopus lavis. Oh, okay. And it was the RDNA. Okay, so, so yeah. that's what stuck me on the RDNA in Xenopus lavis. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Then in '91. Um, you had an NAR paper where you and your team were able to unravel the structure of Xenopus UBF. Um, how is this different and or similar to human UBF and what consequences do arise from that? Similarity or differences? It's, it's really the same. What, what I've realized over the years now as more and more sequence becomes available is that there are various... Um, forms of UBF in different vertebrates. And these these forms, they vary very little. Mm -hmm. Although at first sight, sometimes they look as though they're very different. Uh, the actual DNA binding modules are easily identifiable between species. So the, the, this... This protein in human and in mammals has six DNA binding domains linked together. That makes it a very unusual protein. Um, but each one of those DNA binding domains is quite short. And you can identify each one from Xenopus to human individually. Mm -hmm. And they come in the same order. So there's something totally fundamental about needing this protein. And more recently, um, the group here and the group in Toulouse have managed to, to demonstrate that HMO1 in yeast is essentially the same thing. It's just very much shorter. 
It only has two DNA binding domains. Okay. And a dimerization domain. But so it do seems to do very similar things. Yeah, I guess it's more about the 3D organization of the RDNA locus than as compared to the DNA sequence. I think, or the I think we'd like to know that. <laughs> 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 so when we come to the function of UBF, it is responsible for the formation of an like near complete loop of DNA at the RDNA promoter. Um, how is this looping achieved and why is this so important? Well, uh, the, the first thing that you have to remember is that this loop has only ever been seen in vitro in okay. rather artificial situations <laughs> of, of the electron microscope. Okay. Um, but uh, if it exists in vivo, it, it exists because of in-phase bending of DNA. So each of these DNA binding domains kinks the DNA, and somehow the different binding domains arrange themselves in the correct uh, phase around the DNA in order that all of these bends add to make a loop, which is in itself very, very surprising, I think. Yeah. So is this then also yeah, the reason, because our DNA and ribosomes are like everywhere? I mean, every, mm. every uh, organism needs it, and is this, is this the reason why it's like conformationally the same everywhere? That's a difficult. I think jumping from ribosomes to ribosomal DNA, you know, is a, is a big jump. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, but they're both made, needed. Right? But uh, I mean, bacteria have ribosomes as well. They make ribosomal RNA. Yeah. Uh, they don't have, as far as we know, something like uh, UBF. So uh, yeast manages with a very much shorter protein, Drosophila. So insects, nobody has ever found anything similar up okay. to now. Uh, I always have the feeling that systems are very similar, these kind of basic systems yeah. where, you know, um, between all organisms, all eukaryotic organisms, let's say. Um, but uh, up to now, there look to be differences. So is it really different? Or is it just that we've missed the similarities? Yeah. You also did a, a publication about that, right, in NAR um, later on, um, about the in vivo function and also the species specificity of UBF. Um, right, yeah, investigating those kind of things, right? Yeah, well, there was a, we, were, we were looking at one time at a different sequence alignments, so, so different messages in zebrafish, for example, and so on. Zebrafish appears to have about six different RNAs, at least. Mm -hmm. But it it seems to come from a, probably at six genes that each are spliced differently. Mm -hmm. So you end up with quite a lot of possibilities. But even there, as I said before, every DNA binding domain, you can directly relate to a DNA binding domain in another, mm -hmm. in UBF of another organism. And they stay in the correct order. So you might miss one, you might insert one, 
but everything else stays very, very similar. Okay. And then in the early 2000s, you also, you've focused, yeah, you have identified the UBF and and, uh, and the sequence, and then you focused more on the 3D chromatin structure, the DNA looping and at the RDNA promoter, and the role of UBF in the process. Is there anything more to that than what you just described? Can you go a little bit more Well, I think um, it's, it's not, this is really going into data that we haven't published yet but no. oh, it's okay. clear that um, that the UBF in mouse and humans has two splice forms they're very specific splice forms that are completely conserved between those organisms so we suppose it must be probably most mammals will have the same um, and it's clear now that one of them functions at the promoter and one doesn't. Mm -hmm. So we're beginning to understand why there are two. Uh, we're beginning, I think, to understand why both of them are expressed. Um, it's difficult to go into much detail until we start publishing. Yeah, I don't want to. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll <laughs> no, no, end no, up no. with nothing to publish. No, 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 yeah. I don't want to. Uh, to go into this detail when you haven't published the work yet. Um, I also want to talk about um, your collaboration with Ross Hennen. Um, you had uh, a paper together with him where you investigated the influence of UBF on highly transcribed POL2 genes. So it also has an effect on POL1 and on POL2. Why or how is this uh, across? I think, I think we have differences of opinion. <laughs> you and Ross? Or, yeah. Yeah? yeah. What is your opinion? I mean... Well, Ross knows my opinion, and I have the feeling that um, our data, again, it's not published yet. Oh, we've this, sort is of, all, this is all ongoing. Yeah, well, we've sort of, we, gradually over the years, because we've generated um, mouse lines and mouse cells that have or don't UBF um, conditionally, mm -hmm. it's it's absolutely needed for for um, development, mouse development from about um, eight cells. So it's an essential protein. I don't mean that, but we can we can take and knock it down completely in cell culture. So we can look at what the effects of that would be. Um, and it's clear you you shut out transcription altogether. Um, but what happens at these POL2 genes? What we can see with the knockout cell lines is that they do it, the, the, the binding exists. That's clear. And it's very, very nice mapping. It's, uh, we've done it, Ross has done it. We've done it exhaustively now. <laughs> um, uh, But I still have some doubt as to whether it's functionally important. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're, you know, we're interested to try and find out what's going on there. Okay. You also looked um, with your UBF knockout system at the structure of the nucleolus, right? What happens to the nucleolus? Um, yeah. uh, can you comment on that? Um, how does UBF influence the structure of the nucleolus? Well, I think I think what's going on is that. If you shut down transcription of RDNA, which UBF of RDNA, yes, sorry, um, 
then you you no longer have essentially the source of the base structure of the nucleolus. Um, and what happens to the RDNA depends on how you inhibit transcription. If we take away UBF, UBF, at least one of the splice forms of UBF, is essentially a chromatin protein for RDNA. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the best parallel is to say that it's a nucleosome-free region former. Because it coats, yeah, and then the and nucleosomes it, go away. And as far as we can judge now, there is no nucleosomal structure mm -hmm. on the RDNA, uh, on the active RDNA, let's say, or even the potentially active RDNA under some circumstances. Um, so you have a, a, a nucleosome-free region that's something like 20 kb long which is presumably very unusual for most genes, except uh, where you have very, very dense transcription. Um, and I think that's uh, that's the main thing that's coming out of of what we've been doing, I think, is that the thinking that chromatin modification plays a role in forming the nucleolus and the active RDNA, I think is false. Okay. That it's if if there is a role, it's a very transient role. And what happens with the the um the ribosomal DNA chromatin is that it transitions between a rather um probably open nucleosomal structure and a UBF bound structure within a precise region which is controlled upstream by a boundary that, that we've... It's the only boundary in the ribosomal gene that has any kind of histone modification. Uh, I should <laughs> provide a positive histone modification. So one histone modification that's been associated with transcription. What, what kind of modifications do you find there? Um, well, the classic ones, H4, K3, um, methyl 3, you find methyl 2, you find um, uh, K, K27 acetyl, um, you find H2AZ, H2AZ acetyl, uh, you find CTCF. Yeah, that's the boundary protein, right? Yeah, there. Uh, what about DNA methylation? Uh, <laughs> this is becoming a more and more difficult story. Okay. Um, we, we now have systems where there is no methylation in the RDNA, natural systems. Mm -hmm. So natural cells that, uh, that really don't require methylation at all okay. on the RDNA. Um, I don't, th it, it's, certain now that methylation does not control transcription on the RDNA. Okay. Um, beyond that, it's it's a complicated problem to know, but I, uh, to understand, but I have the feeling that the only reason to have RDNA methylation is to try to persuade certain NORs and 
So when I say nors, I mean loci that contain the repeats, the ribosomal DNA repeats. Um, human and mouse have five, five chromosomes carrying these near the, near the uh, well, between the telomere and the centromere of a short arm. And um, these, some of these are permanently inactivated. And when I say permanently, the data looks as though they're inactivated um, over many, many, many generations mm -hmm. of animals, not just cells and cell divisions, but animals. So it's, it's very similar to X inactivation, except that there seems to be an even longer term mm -hmm. uh, part to this. Something is determining that those loci will go from one generation to another of animal as an inactivated locus. Why? There's, I suppose, that for me, the most obvious is that it could serve as a means of maintaining a repeat locus stably mm -hmm. and uh, keeping the genes that are there in a functional potentially functional state to be and able to come back to them as a backup or? or to be able to excise amplify and reinsert at the active loci okay to because we know that the loci expand and contract exactly like happens in in yeast and that process seems to go via rdna circles okay um And it might make sense to put aside some genes that are not being damaged or are being damaged minimally in order that you can take good genes out. <laughs> yeah, and insert them back yeah. again. Coming back to the nucleolus structure, so, so you were saying if you take away UBF, you don't have rRNA, and rRNA would be the main glue to hold together the nucleoli. And this is why they maybe fall apart or you don't see less? Well, the, the nucleoli are really only the RDNA being transcribed and the cloud of pre-ribosomes. How this all holds together, uh, we don't understand. I mean, Ed we Rooker? go to this, uh, these ideas of phase transitions and things like this. Phase separation? Yeah. Hydrochromatin being around the nucleoli, holding it together, or is this cause or consequence? <laughs> it's different in mouse and human, so yeah. I can't see that that's a driving force. Yeah. It's, an, it's more of a necessity because um, each ribosomal locus, each nor, is flanked by heterochromatin. So it has to go somewhere. <laughs> and that heterochromatin will naturally be just on the yeah. edge of the nucleolus. So do you need the heterochromatin there, or is it just a consequence of where the ribosomal genes are in yeah. the chromosome? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. So to finish up this interview, I have two more general questions. The first one is, did you at one point of your career face a situation where you reached that end end, or did not know what to do next, or were you always like full of ideas and just didn't have the time to do everything you wanted to do? Well, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, a lot of these not knowing what to do next uh, come from, obviously, 
problems if you if you end up I was once in a situation where I didn't have funding um, that yeah. makes you reflect very hard <laughs> um, yes and of course every every week every month every year I keep thinking why are we doing this you know um, which way do we go next and feeling that perhaps we're getting to a dead end um, generally then somebody comes in to my office or I go into the lab and see something on a table a little drawing of data and I'm surprised you know yeah. I mean we didn't expect that so this drives the next idea yeah so things just go on like that yeah so in the last 28 minutes uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career Uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important finding or what, or something that we might have missed in this interview? Well, I think going... Now now we're beginning to get more detailed data of how the ribosomal gene chromatin looks. I'm beginning to understand what we published in 83. There, there was the... That was all based on, on Xenopus RDNA ribosomal DNA and uh, that was showing that everything upstream of where we then knew we'd only just recently found out where the transcription started was actually functioning to somehow select or amplify transcription from that gene uh, we realized there were multiple promoters but we didn't understand what they were doing. Um, but we could tell that they were changing the ability of the gene that was linked mm -hmm. to transcribe. I think we're beginning to get there now. Okay. Is it that... It's far more complicated than we thought, but... Uh, yeah. Of course, it's always the case. Is it like this regulatory region that you are just referring to? Is it uh, regulating every single repeat or the, like the whole repeat the whole norm or is it for every single it looks like it's every single one yeah well that's pretty complicated <laughs> then. yeah it looks as though it it's a it's a matter of it, it looks very much as though there's a, a classic enhancer uh, classic in the sense that it looks exactly like a polymerase 2 enhancer The only difference is it has a polymerase one promoter incorporated in it. And that polymerase one transcribes the gene? <laughs> no. No. A polymerase one transcribes the gene, yes, sorry, but that polymerase one doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that polymerase one is doing something different. And that's what we've been trying to work on a little bit, that uh, um, that polymerase one is, is actually arrested probably arrested over minutes, tens of minutes, something like that, and then somehow is released. And this process, we think now, the most recent stuff that we've, we're finding, we think now that process is defining um, how active the gene is, the gene that's linked in cis. Okay. Yeah, we... We'll be waiting and see what uh, 
publications you bring out the next years or months and then i hope we manage to get some <laughs> <laughs> and then we uh, will follow and read it and uh, it will be inter interesting to see um what you find there and thank you tom for your time for this interview and yeah happy to see you soon this was the 19th episode of the epigenetics podcast thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed it Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to read your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <music>